Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anaesthesia, and we chat all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. I was on the edge of my seat when I had this conversation, and I'm sure you will find it riveting as well. I chat with Colin Baird, who's an anaesthetist and pain physician, who shares with me his experience of recovering from fentanyl addiction. Colin shares with us a strong message of hope. I am so grateful to Colin for writing about his experiences and sharing a wealth of resources in his article that was published in Anesthesia and Intensive Care. So if this episode brings up anything for you, then please, I encourage you to talk to someone. There are lots of people out there that you can talk to. I'll share a link to Colin's article in the show notes, as well as all the resources that he's included in there. They'll be in the show notes as well. If you're an ASA member, you can also contact the ASA directly. We have a dedicated email. It's support at asa.org.au. It goes directly to the CEO, Mark Carmichael, and is handled confidentially, and we can refer you on from there. Okay, let's get straight into it. Thanks for giving up some time today. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's kind, yeah. I've got to say, I was, I think, a little bit nervous about this one, just because I'd hope I don't ask you anything that might upset you. I appreciate you being caring in that respect. What I found has been really heartening, actually, since I published the article. I've had the opportunity to talk about it a few times now in public forums. What I've found is that actually people are very open and caring in the, in the way that they listen. And for me, speaking about it has been such a therapeutic process. It's really kind of helped bring my, my recovery along and... So I'm happy to speak about it. I was so moved by it. From a professional, but also a very personal level, really, really thank you for coming forward. That's also been something that I found since speaking publicly about my story has been that other people have volunteered and shared things with me about themselves or about relatives or friends. And and it's something that does touch many people, yeah. You write very powerfully in the article about your personal experience. Do you want to just explain what happened? I hope I got across in the the article, the the first step, you know, the first time that I crossed that line was, it was during a time in my life when things weren't great. And, you know, I was in a, I was in a a vulnerable position looking back in that I was susceptible to, you know, making bad choices and risk-taking behaviour and and I was working as an aesthetist and I could see the, the effect that fentanyl had on my patients. And I began to fantasize about using it. You know, it, it was something that just began to go around my mind. And once I started to look, I noticed just how many opportunities there were in the, the whole process between signing it out and giving it to the patient and then afterwards, how many opportunities there were for diversion. It seemed glaringly obvious to me that this was something that could be done. And then one day it happened, I, I slipped a syringe into my pocket and you know, I was incredibly nervous and anxious and thought, well, I'm going to be caught, but I wasn't. And being an anaesthetist, we are trained to give IV drugs and it was actually remarkably easy to self-administer. And being an anaesthetist, you know, I had a good idea about doses and things and so I felt safe that I wasn't going to be overdosing. And the effect was as you'd expect. 
And it, it really was as simple as that. I mean, the crossing that line happened. And once it had happened, you know, I couldn't go back. Um, you couldn't sort of pretend that it hadn't happened. What that meant was that the next time I was back in theatre, the thoughts all just returned. And because I knew that I'd got away with it that time, I, you know, I thought, well, I can get away with this again. And it, it sounds sort of remarkably kind of matter of fact, but it is. Uh, and I'm not making excuses about the sort of personal situation I was in and, and saying that I wasn't responsible because of that at all. But that th- these things obviously play into the decisions you make at any moment uh, in your life. And and that was a particularly bad decision, you know, in so many ways. You know, what happened after that, I think, again, I tried to kind of convey this in the article, how chaotic, but then also how mundane things can be and this is something that I've learned in recovery you know talking to other people with substance use disorders and and learning more about addiction is that addictions are an incredibly kind of monotonous and extremely tedious process a lot of the time it really is just this cycle and and so I you know I became gripped by the process and couldn't find a way out of it basically. How long were you in that grip? Quite a long time. We're talking years rather than months. And that's unusual. And again, from reading about fentanyl addiction specifically, most people, it it comes to light within a few months usually. But clearly there are exceptions, and and I was one of them. There there are probably a number of reasons for that. We talk about high-functioning addicts and alcoholics. And so I was in that bracket in that I was continuing to to function. I was continuing to do my job to a level at which I wasn't arousing suspicion. I was even continuing to progress with the other things that you need to do as as a professional, as a doctor. But it was all very, very fragile and tenuous, and it could have come crashing down at any time. Um, And it's only just sheer good luck and fortune that, that it didn't end tragically for me or for one of my patients. How did you come out of that grip? I knew that I had a problem. I knew I was an addict. I read a number of articles through the, the months and years in the anesthesia journals about specifically about anesthetists with addiction. And, you know, I knew that that was me. There was no pretending otherwise. So it wasn't that I was in denial. It was that I just couldn't see a way out of it. Um, because in my opinion, speaking up or asking for help would mean the end of my career and probably the end of you know my personal relationships as far as I could see and so whenever I thought about trying to get help it always just seemed easier to put it off you know another day and then amongst this would be countless attempts to just stop which clearly never worked willpower doesn't get you very far with an addiction and it didn't get me very very far at all so for long periods, I was just in a kind of a holding pattern. You know, I was I was just trying to contain this thing and naively thinking that things will probably change and I'll, I'll be able to sort myself out. What really kind of precipitated the, the end of it was moving to another hospital and another environment. And that, it's called doing a geographical in the world of uh, addiction, where you, you think that, great, I'll just move somewhere else and that will be a new start and that's what I need to do. But... Clearly, when the problem is with yourself, then you know you just take it with you, and that's what happened. But the difference in the new environment was that, it, it, well, there were a number of differences which led to my problem becoming more and more difficult to control and difficult to keep a, a handle on. And it, it really became quite a dangerous time looking back. And I think had it not ended the way it did, then it may have ended 
quite tragically. But thankfully, my colleagues did notice that there was unusual behaviour and they, they acted on it. Crucially, they, you know, they didn't pretend that, they, that it was something else or something else's problem to deal with. And that led to an intervention which initiated change for me. When you said you did a geographical, mm. that sounds like you initiated that. That was your attempt to change things. Yeah. We moved to another hospital, another country, outwardly for reasons of you know new jobs and, and new life. And, and these were all true, but underneath it all, I was very much thinking that this could be the new start that I needed. And I think looking back that, perhaps played into some of the decision-making that I took around that move. I was thinking, okay, this is an opportunity to try and sort myself out. So, yeah, I was taking the initiative in that respect, but it wasn't an effective strategy. You said it led to a situation that was quite dangerous. Mm. Was that for your well-being? Yes. The, the mortality among anaesthetists with addiction is quite staggering, and for a good reason that you know, the, the anaesthetic agents that they are taking are, are lethal and the, the amounts you use can spiral. So there was definitely an ever-growing risk that I was going to uh, overdose. And looking back, it, it, it's, it's really hard to kind of reconcile. And, and, but at the time, you're, you're in the midst of it and you're not thinking rationally. You know, rational thoughts gone out the window a long time ago. So it was dangerous for me. I, I do have to say that, well, not have to say, I want to say that I failed in my duty as a, as a doctor. You know, the care for my patients was, was compromised. And again, it's good fortune that nothing happened and there were no incidents with patients. But that's, again, something that I have to, to live with. And, you know, looking back, it's clearly aware that the, the way I was behaving and the way that I was practicing was, was not. Um, how I should have been. I'm very thankful that you didn't succumb. Thank you. And you also said that you were very thankful that your colleagues noted something. Yeah. The presentation of addiction in anaesthetists is quite a difficult thing to pick up, I think. And, and that's borne out by the fact that it wasn't picked up with me for, for quite some time. The, the non-specific signs are really the, they're synonymous with being a hard-working anaesthetist. You, you're just getting on with the job. You're doing, you're spending as much time in theatre as you can because that's the environment in which you can access the drug. Within that, there are kind of subtle signs. And again, looking back, it's it's interesting that they weren't picked up on because I would, I feel that I would notice them in someone else. But things like always drawing up your drugs alone, getting in early to draw up drugs before other people arrive, being difficult to find between cases, perhaps using fentanyl in kind of slightly unusual situations like sedation where other people don't tend to use it. And again, I mean, none of these are absolute red flags, but when there's a pattern, that's something that may indicate there's a problem. But what my colleagues noticed in me with the later signs were, you know, things are really starting to, to decompensate. And I was I was using more. Um, my tolerance was going up. There's a culture in where I work at the moment of more fentanyl being used as a sort of first-line opioid. And the simple fact is that the more accessible something is, the more you may use it. And that was leading to kind of ever more erratic and, and chaotic behaviour. And so that's that's the sort of thing that my colleagues picked up on. Thankfully, they they handled it in a, in a kind and compassionate manner and they you know, they spoke to the clinical director who, who then organised an intervention. 
But yeah, I mean, I, I'm forever grateful to them for doing what they did because who knows what would have happened otherwise. When I read it in the article, it, it sounded like a huge weight had been lifted off your shoulders. That is true. It, it, and it was a strange kind of mix of emotions when uh, when intervention happened. There was a sort of tug of war going on my head between on one side the you know, side of me that was still very much addicted to fentanyl and did not want to give this up. Uh, and then the other side of me, which did and had known for a long time that this was a problem that actually I wanted to try and sort out. The good thing about an intervention when it's done well is that the evidence you've presented with is overwhelming and there's really no wriggle room. You know, you could try, but it, it would be pretty futile. That was clear. That was obvious um, to me. And it gave that chink, that kind of slight opening in the door to just push it open and just say, yes, this is what's happening. You are right. I need help. As soon as I said that, as soon as I sort of let that emotion out, there was an incredible sense of relief that washed over me. I mean, it, it really was quite remarkable. I mean, there were lots of other emotions as well, but definitely relief because I knew that things were getting ever more difficult to to manage and I didn't want to keep going like this, you know. Uh, and that's that's carried with me, you know, it's solidified. It's, it's formed into a kind of background state, which I, I tap into quite commonly, particularly when I'm at work and I'm, you know, I'm in theatre and, and I just think, what a relief. I'm no longer, I'm, I'm no longer on this merry-go-round of, of anxiety and concealment and stress. And I, I can just do my job and, and enjoy it, try and do it as well as I can. That's wonderful to hear. You mentioned when an intervention is done well. Hmm. What makes a good intervention? I think the most important aspect starts even before the intervention in that you have a culture in the department of openness where you know, there's literally an open door to the clinical director and there's a sense that people can come forward with concerns about colleagues and then be treated with respect and confidentially and, and discreetly. So I was fortunate to work somewhere where I think such a culture did exist. And then the other key factors are to have people in positions of authority in the department who are kind and caring and compassionate and will take this on in the way that it has to be done because it's it's quite an undertaking to coordinate and carry out an intervention. I think there's sort of two strands of interventions to consider. There's there's one where you do have a bit of time to try and gather some evidence and do it in a really kind of as coordinated as a way as possible. And then there's another type where actually you need to intervene immediately. Um, those are perhaps the most challenging. And I think that's a situation where you would even have to remove the doctor from the place of work and, and involve a duty psychiatrist, for example. But most of the time, certainly from my reading, interventions are carried out following reports and suspicions. So there is a bit of time to, to gather evidence. And I think getting a, a fairly watertight case together makes it easier because it then, as I said, it just prevents or hopefully prevents the narrative kind of heading off in different directions and, and denial and, and excuses. So gathering evidence is important. And then the personnel who are there and it shouldn't just be an individual, it should be more than one person. The exact makeup of the team will depend on the department in which you work. Many departments do have people who are involved in welfare and, and well-being, and they may be good people to involve. And then really it depends on, on how it goes and how the person reacts to it. I think where at all possible, you try and have a support person with them, and that might not be possible. 
With me, my partner was actually involved during the intervention, and that was a, a really valuable aspect to my particular situation. I think those are the important ingredients of a good intervention, but there's not a one-size-fits-all. Intervention can be a time that's really high risk for anaesthetists, and I think almost everyone in this situation fears the impact on their career. Yeah. So what was that time like for you? I think one of the problems that get in the way of people speaking up about colleagues um, or one of the concerns is that they are naturally concerned about perhaps levelling false accusations, but also there's a, there's a real worry that if I speak up and that my colleague will lose their career, you know, they'll lose their job. And hopefully one of the messages I can give by writing and talking about my experience is that that needn't be the case. You're right, it can be quite a risky time for the individual who's involved. There have been reports of anaesthetists sadly taking their lives following interventions. Sometimes these have been less than optimally organised, you know, and, and, and they're, they're little more than a you know, confrontation in the corridor. You should certainly never let the person just leave at the end and, and, and go off home on their own. What I really took from that very kind of raw initial period um, it's amazing what things stay with you. You know, there's probably a lot said that I don't remember, but certain things said that I do. And the things that I do remember were along the lines of giving me hope that there would be a way back and, and that I could hold on to my identity as a, as a doctor. Because that is so important. We are so tied up with our identity as a, as a professional, as a doctor. It's well shown in the world of aviation in particular that if you can help pilots, and I believe doctors, hold on to their identity, then that can greatly improve their chances of uh, successful recovery. So I think that begins at the time of the intervention, you know, just giving that hope and, and certainly not taking drastic punitive measures and talking about job security or, or you know anything like that. That's not the time to do it. There will be a process you go through, clearly, but the intervention is not the time to talk about these things. That's a really good tip. So where are you at now? I'm in a, a great place. It, it's difficult to overstate just how much better everything is now than it was. And that's, you know, that's not just professionally, that's personally as well. I mean, the, this obviously did impact on every aspect of my life, although I, I managed to keep it from those around me. I'm back working. I work full time as an anaesthetist uh, and a pain specialist as well. I'm still under the care of the Health Committee of the Medical Council. and I do still undergo hair testing every few months. I see that as a necessity and certainly not an imposition because it allows me to show that I'm doing okay and not only to my employers and the medical council but to my family as well. As time goes by they're, they're less concerned but there's always that underlying concern so that's an important part of my recovery. But yeah I'm back practicing normally and I'm thoroughly enjoying professional life and personal life. I'm so glad to hear that. What was the motivation for writing the article? Yeah, that's a, a good question. It, it did evolve at the time of the, you know, immediately following the intervention and in those weeks and months afterwards, I, I was writing things down. I, I think it's quite a, a useful therapeutic process to, to just write down your thoughts and your feelings, not with any intention of anyone else reading them, but just to help you kind of process things. And so I was, I was writing things down and I continued that around the time of going back to work, which was a, 
a particularly anxious time. You know, I was really apprehensive about how that was going to go. Not so much from the point of relapsing, because I felt quite comfortable with the, the sort of safety net that was around me, but more from the way that I was going to be viewed and, and the reception I would get from my colleagues. And actually, one of the most heartening things has been how wrong I was and actually how supportive people have been when I went back. So I, I wrote all this down and then I didn't do anything with it for quite a while. And there'd been some chat with a few people at work about maybe trying to put together a, an article or an educational piece or something. And, and then beginning of 2020, I don't know, just quite suddenly, it just felt like the right time to just start writing things. And that coincided with going into lockdown and, and having a, a bit more space around you. Um, although, you know, we we're obviously still working, but it, it sort of flowed from there. And I began to write. And my my wife's been my chief editor, uh, and she's been fantastic at helping me refine it and, and put it together. And I was always keen on trying to combine my story with a, a review of the topic in general, because I know there's a lot out there, but I thought that I'd have a, a slightly different perspective on things, perhaps, and, and trying to pull all that together into an article. And so it's been a really, really cathartic process, which has been immensely satisfying, actually, to to finally achieve and do and, and publish. Uh, and I'm extremely grateful to Anesthesia and Intensive Care for, for having the courage to publish it. I'm thankful that you took the time to write the article. I think, as I said at the start, it's incredibly powerful. And I, I hope more people read it, perhaps by listening through this podcast. I was once talking with a friend who is a recovering alcoholic. Hmm. I hadn't heard about this concept, but he talked of being a dry alcoholic. I haven't heard of that exact concept, but I think I know what it means, which is that even though you're you're not actively drinking alcohol, you're still an alcoholic. Yeah, in the world of, of recovery, there is very much this sense that you never leave recovery. It's not as though you get to the end, you're like, right, I'm now fully recovered. Addiction is a chronic condition. People can relapse decades after they've been sober. And in fact, the, there was a recent paper which I referenced in the article which looked at 15-year abstinence rates among anaesthetists with addiction, and it tails off. And 15 years later, the abstinence rate is down to 37%. So it's something that you're continually with, and I don't think you can become complacent. And I think that's a lesson that I'm going to carry with me. Addiction is quite a broad term, and there are lots of things that people can become addicted to and contexts in which they can become dependent and addicted. One of the aspects with my condition and being addicted to fentanyl as an anaesthetist is that it is so intrinsically wrapped up with what I do, and I'm around it all the time. Um, I suppose the analogy would be a, an alcoholic who works as a, a bar manager. And so I have to be even more mindful of that. So, yeah, it's something that I will have with me for, for the rest of my career. But the more I talk about it, the more I'm open about it, I think the, I wouldn't say easier it gets, but it's no longer at front and centre in my mind by any manner. It's just something that's there that I have to be aware of. Knowing what you know about relapse rates, do you think that has or will impact the choices you make about your career going forwards? There are quite a few anaesthetists who do decide to change specialty and I've been very fortunate to have the support around me professionally and personally and the desire to attempt a return to clinical anaesthesia. But I've met anaesthetists who've decided to change specialty, absolutely, or some have even left medicine altogether. Because the risk of a fatal relapse is uh, it's high. The data is, is fairly sparse, but around 10% of anaesthetists with addiction who return to clinical anaesthesia will 
suffer a fatal relapse, which is quite staggering. Mm, um, very. And it, it has led to debate over whether it's a, an acceptable risk to be taking with people's lives. But I don't think you come to a sweeping conclusion based on that. I think every situation is different uh, and every individual is different. So for me, returning to anesthesia has actually been a very powerful driver of my ongoing sobriety, and it continues to be so. Good. I hope you have a long career in anesthesia. It clearly brings you joy. Yeah. What do you think has been the most difficult part of this whole process? That's a good question. I think the most difficult part has actually been the effect it's had on my relationships with family and friends and the initial difficulty of actually telling them and explaining this to people. But what's led from that has been some wonderful evolution of of relationships and rekindling of relationships and friendships. But I think there's still a lot of stigma around addiction and that's getting better, but I do still think that there's a sense that it's a it's just a moral failure on the part of the individual and that you should be treated accordingly. And even though that's improving, it's still something that I grapple with, even. You know, even as a as someone who's lived it and living the experience, you know, it's just, just a failure on my part. And it's it's a complicated process. Mm, I can imagine. On the flip side, what has been one of the most helpful things about this whole experience? It's definitely propelled me in a, in a, in a positive direction. It sounds weird uh, and it's a cliche, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But it's true. I think anyone who goes through a difficult experience, whether that's you know bereavement or illness or personal difficulties, if or when you come through the other side of it, there are lessons you've learned and there's a wisdom you've attained which stays with you and shapes you in a, in a positive direction. That's how I see it. I just wanted to ask one final question, which is, if you could say anything, the mic is yours, what is it that you'd like to say? That's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> I think what, what I would say is I would direct a message to anyone among us who's, who's in a, a difficult situation that may be directly the same as mine or, or related or even unrelated to, to, you know, to substances in particular, but just having a tough time at work. So I'm kind of directing this to our colleagues, which is that don't think that you're alone uh, and ask for help. There's actually loads of resources out there, which I wish I had tapped into before, but I didn't. You don't have to say who you are, but just start the conversation, start talking to someone. I can't overstate how important it was for me to talk to another anaesthetist after my intervention who had been through a similar situation to me. It really just, it helped immensely. And so my message would be, ask for help. What you'll find is that there's help out there. And what you'll also find is that by exposing a bit of vulnerability, by admitting that you know you can't fix everything by yourself, that people will reciprocate, people will will be kind and compassionate. And and I've been quite overwhelmed with just how caring and and kind our profession is, which sounds silly because we're in a a caring profession, aren't we? But, you know, there are so many really good people out there. You're not alone. Just reach out. Have you got any particular resources that you would like to direct people to? There's a group who I did reach out to called the Australian Doctors in Recovery. There's also a New Zealand branch as well. 
And they, as the name implies, is doctors who are in recovery from substance problems, alcohol, drugs. And they have a, an annual meeting, which is a combination of scientific presentations. And then they have a closed meeting, 12-step style. And I reached out to them when I was in that kind of immediate post-intervention period. And, and that was a, a really valuable resource for me. There are also similar groups in the UK, the Sick Doctors Trust and the British Doctors and Dental Group. Um, and again, they have numbers you can call in confidence just to, to chat to someone. So those are some to, to get going with. I think there's a few more in my article to reference. I'll put a link to those in with this podcast so people can hopefully find them easily. Oh, Colin, I wanted to thank you so much for your time today. I do really hear a joy in your voice when you talk about anesthesia and a real strength as well. And I really, really do hope that that continues for you going forwards. Thank you, Susie. I'm, I'm grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to chat to you today. I was so moved. I was so impressed. Well, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation. As I mentioned, I will share the resources that Colin mentions. They are also available in the article that he wrote. And he wrote an excellent article, not just a review article, but one where he shares his personal experiences so powerfully. That article can be found in Anesthesia and Intensive Care. The link to that is in the episode notes. And that, I am proud to say, is the journal that is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists. So well done and congratulations, as Colin said, to the editorial team for bravely publishing that article. The focus of Colin's article and our conversation was very much on the intervention and the subsequent course, as well as in the review articles, some of the information around doctors with substance use disorders. What we didn't focus on in a lot of detail is how he came to be exposed and use fentanyl. And so I want to direct you to another audio file, I suppose it is, or even a transcript to read. But definitely I recommend if you're up for it, listening to another anaesthetist, this time someone from America, and her account of how she developed a substance use disorder. If this episode has raised anything for you, then please do encourage you to look at those resources. You can also contact the ASA. We have a dedicated email. It's support at asa.org.au and that goes to the CEO, Mark Carmichael, uh, where he can refer you on confidentially. There are a handful of anaesthetists who are also trained counsellors who you can talk to, as well as other doctors through some of these other organisations. The ASA also has a benevolent fund which can be used to support members who might be experiencing financial hardship. And finally, at our last council meeting a few weeks ago, we learned that this particular article, since it was first published, has had 6,000 downloads, which I think is fantastic. I'm hoping that means people are reading about this, talking about this. I know a colleague at work came up to me the other day and wondered whether we had the resources in our department to handle this kind of situation. So I think that's a great first step of asking the question because it might happen and you never know when or where or to who. And hopefully by reading about it, talking about it, we can be better prepared and help our colleagues through this situation. Okay, hope you enjoyed listening and stay safe out there. 
This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the Free Music Archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>